Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Praise you, God. Praise you, Jesus. You are good. You are faithful. You are true. You are present here. You are with us. Lord God, we come before you this evening um, hungry. Hungry in the deepest recesses of our hearts and souls for satisfaction and fulfillment that only you can offer. Whether we realize it or not, our hearts are longing to hear the words of Scripture, to hear your voice speak to us. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that we would tap into that hunger and be attentive and focused on your words and how you are moving and speaking to us. Remove from us any distraction, worry, anxiety, anything drawing our focus or attention away from this time, and help us to enter the words of sacred scripture with open hearts, ears that are ready to listen, and help us to be ready to receive whatever you have in store. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you bless us each in the ways we most need it and guide this time as we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. This is the, the Gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. And we've been bouncing around in Matthew and John, and now we are back to Mark, and we will remain in Mark for several weeks uh, until we get into the season of Lent, uh, and that is the gospel we are predominantly in in this liturgical year. So now we get to get more of a sense of the gospel of Mark tonight. So even though this is just in verse 14, uh, a few things happened before this in, in the gospel of Mark. Uh, we have the proclamation and the preaching of John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus is baptized, and then he is tempted out in the desert. Uh, and so what it takes Luke and Matthew about three or four chapters to get through. Mark uh, peels through in about 13 verses. And so we're a little bit of a ways into uh, the story that we know of Jesus, uh, but we're still at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was the very first Gospel to be written. Uh, it wanted to, he wanted to get the good news out to people, so it's very much like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's just kind of like a, a very fast, speedy highlight reel of the good news of Jesus. And so uh, it may appear that way as we read over the course of these several weeks that things just move very, very quickly. Um, so we're going to read, as I said, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. We'll read this twice through. Just get a picture for what is being said here this first time through. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. After John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
As Jesus passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. Jesus walked along a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in a boat, mending their nets. Then he called them. So they left their father Zebedee in the boat, along with the hired men, and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So this may on the surface seem pretty similar to the gospel we had yesterday, talking about the two disciples responding to the call of Jesus, one of which was Andrew, going to tell Simon, and the other which presumably was John. Uh, but we have a little bit different of a perspective, more of a narrative account, an eyewitness account here in the gospel of Mark. So as we read this one more time, I encourage you to just listen very attentively to the words as they are read. Now you might have an image in your head. Try not to now interpret this theologically, rather see what, what stands out to you personally. Could be a detail, an insignificant word or phrase. Pay attention to those things and begin to listen to them and reflect on them and consider what might the Lord be saying to me through this particular detail that is resonating. So one final time through Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. After John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Jesus passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked along a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, they too were in a boat mending their nets. Then he called them. So they left their father Zebedee in the boat along with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so now that we've read this twice through, I invite you to take a moment to reflect back over this passage and the things that stood out to you. If you're watching this or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you in the comments. But for those of us here, feel free to join another table if you'd like and discuss uh, what stood out to you and why, or any questions you have about this passage. And then when we bring it back together in the larger group momentarily, we'll uh, have some teaching and some time for question and answers. So take about the next 10 or 15 minutes to share with those at your table. So, um, as always, I want to put a few things into context that um, if you were reading this or hearing this at the time, uh, shortly after it was written, uh, what would you have heard or inferred, knowing maybe a little bit about Jewish culture or the Old Testament that we can sometimes miss? A lot of this is really packed in these first couple verses uh, before the actual call of the disciples. But first and foremost, uh, there's a reference here to John the Baptist being arrested. And we don't hear why. We don't hear why until Mark chapter 6. And then we have this kind of flashback of what happens. And so that's Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, where John the Baptist, he starts preaching against... Uh, the leader of the region where he's doing ministry. So across the Jordan, where John the Baptist was preaching, is a region called Perea. And Perea was um, being, uh, the, that region was uh, part of, that, of one of the descendants of Herod, one of his children. And he had uh, killed, actually, I don't know if this is true. Well, he, he, there was nefarious things going on, but he married his brother's wife. 
And his brother, I think, came to nefarious ends. I don't know if it's for sure or not if he killed him. But, um, and it was the context of the marriage was it was an illicit, illicit Jewish marriage because he was half Jewish. And there were certain prescriptions for marriage that he did not follow. Um, and I think he left his, his wife he was married to in order to marry his, his uh, brother's wife. So anyway, John the Baptist lets him have it for this. He's preaching publicly about how this is not right. He's not following Jewish customs. He doesn't care that he's the king. And this really upsets them. So he gets arrested. But Herod is a little kind of, uh, he's taken aback by John the Baptist. He's very interested in him. He, uh, he doesn't want to, to harm him. But um, he, he's, I don't know if he's intimidated, but he has this kind of fascination. But his now wife, Herodias, hates John the Baptist. So they're having this party. Herod has a little bit too much to drink. Uh, and their daughter, Salome, does this dance. It's called the Dance of the Seven Veils. And if you've ever seen, uh, I think there's an opera or a, a musical or a play called Salome um, and other uh, theatric depictions of this dance. It's a very lewd kind of dance. It's very like erotic depiction. Uh, and it would have been that way at the time in the culture that they were living in not really abiding by uh, Jewish norms, kind of living very uh, uh, secular lifestyle. And so Herod is very um, pleased with this dance, and he offers his daughter anything that she asks for in front of all of his guests. And she goes to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a silver plate. And he goes and he can't embarrass himself now in front of his guests, and that's how John the Baptist meets his end. So we're seeing the beginnings of that here, that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist has done his job to proclaim, this one is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, you should follow him. And then he gets whoop, snapped up, and he gets, uh, the word that's used where he's arrested is parodidomai in Greek, which is the same word uh, that's used for Jesus when he's given up or handed over at the end of his ministry to be crucified. Um, and so that's what's going on with John the Baptist. Uh, and so it says Jesus came to Galilee. John the Baptist really had the region of Judea. So Jesus is kind of, it's like, you know, he goes, I go high, you go low. Like John the Baptist is down in the south. He goes north to the region of Galilee, which is interesting because that's a region that is predominantly considered by the Jewish culture at the time, kind of Galilee of the Gentiles is what it's called in scripture. It's not the most... Uh, appropriate place for a Jewish rabbi to be doing ministry. You know, you, the highlight, the climax is Jerusalem. You want to go there. So it's interesting that Jesus goes to Galilee. And he's proclaiming the gospel of God. That's where we get the word good news, euangelion. Uh, and there's a couple things that you would hear immediately when you would hear that phrase. Um, proclaiming the gospel of God. It would point you right back, first of all, to the very first verse of Mark's gospel. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this immediately, when you start reading the gospel of Mark, you immediately would have read this and thought, oh, they're trying to paint this person, Jesus, as in tension with and opposed to the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor was often given the title of Son of God. They believed he was divine. It was printed on their coin. Uh, the word like Caesar Augustus, um, Augustus, I believe, means divine. So there was this, uh, this phrase, uh, instead of saying uh, Christos Kyrios, which they would say in the early church, Jesus is Lord, it was already uh, common culture in Roman society to say Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And so to have this title, Son of God, that was usually used for uh, a Roman emperor, is immediately putting Jesus in opposition with the powers that be. And then to say that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, that word in Greek is euangelion. And that was an existing Greek word that if the uh, Caesar or his armies went into an area and were victorious in battle, someone would go back 
through to the place of, of like to Rome or the place where that ruler dictated uh, or ruled, and they would be pronouncing the euangelion, the good news of victory over the enemy. Okay, so this is very Roman emperor language that Mark is using. And if you were to hear this, knowing this culture at the time, it would immediately have been like, Caesar is not the Lord. Caesar is not who we should look to. We look to Jesus, all in that first line. And so when that's repeated, the gospel of God, that's what would come to mind. That word gospel or good news um, also is in the Old Testament. There are references to this in the Old Testament, most of which are in Isaiah. All throughout Isaiah, uh, let's see, Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one bringing good news, announcing peace, bearing good news, announcing salvation, saying to Zion, your God is king. So already back in Isaiah, we have this kind of depiction of the one who is announcing good news is proclaiming that God is king, not that Caesar is king, which is the reality later for the secular culture, but this is being prophesied that someone would do this in the future, would proclaim good news. This happens again in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, Messiah, Christos, that's what anointed is. He has sent me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners, to announce a year of favor from the Lord and a day of vindication by our God. And Isaiah 61 goes on much the same. Uh, and so this idea of there being good news was something that was already kind of anticipated in these prophecies about the one who would come and rescue so when you just see that word, the gospel of God, this is the time of fulfillment. This is when all these things that have been promised are going to happen, and they're in direct opposition to everything you think about who is powerful and divine in the world right now, directly opposed to the power of Caesar. So it's no wonder why some people thought Jesus was going to be a political figure, even at this time, because all the language surrounding him is he's going to kind of be toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Roman emperor. And yet, they're using all these themes from the Old Testament to show that this is pointing back. It's not pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to politically threaten the Roman emperor in some kind of battle or, uh, or rising up in some kind of coup, but he is going to fulfill these prophecies which surpass anything that the Roman emperor is capable of. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This would echo certain phrases in the Old Testament uh, about repentance and returning to God. This is in Nehemiah verse one, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 9. If you prove faithless, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep carefully my commandments, even though your outcasts have been driven out to the farthest corner of the world, I will gather them from there and I will bring them back to the place I have chosen as their dwelling place for my name. Uh, also in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 12, I have brushed away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And lastly, in Hosea uh, chapter 14, verse 2, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all iniquity and take what is good. So all of these kind of prophecies about when the good news is proclaimed, there will be forgiveness. There'll be a regathering of people back to the place where God has chosen them and called them by name. All of that in just these first two verses would be fresh on the ears or real at the front of the mind of those people who were reading this and knew their Old Testament or knew the language being used in culture surrounding Roman rule and Caesar. 
all of that kind of coming to mind. The last thing that I want to point out is, uh, is this, the, this process of discipleship. And I've said this many times at Bible study, so I, forgive me if this is repeated for you, uh, but we always have new people here and it's useful to kind of put this in full context. So it was not unusual at this time for a rabbi to call disciples. It was very, very common. When you became about the age of 30, you were in the position if you were educated enough and influential enough to become a rabbi. But the process of discipleship was different than what Jesus did. The, norm, the normal thing was that when you were about five years old, you would go to synagogue and be educated, all young boys and girls, in a system of education called Beit Sefer, meaning house of the book. And you would learn and memorize the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was your entire educational system, memorizing those books, because they contained all the stories of the covenants with God, that God made with us, at least most of them, uh, the law from Moses, and all of the rules for purity and purification, and what it was like to sacrifice in the temple and how to go about that. It was all of that leading up to the time being entered into the promised land. And so it was very important for people to know this. And you would keep learning that and memorizing it until you came to the, about the age of nine or 10. The young women would go home and learn from their mothers about all the, the trades of being uh, at home. And the young men who were the best educated would move forward. But if you weren't very good in school, you would be told, go home and learn your father's trade. And so if you were a tradesman, namely like a fisherman, that meant you weren't one of the best students. You were a reject. You were told you're not good enough. You can't be a disciple of a rabbi. You don't know enough about the law. And if you would stick around, you'd enter the next level of education. You would continue to study the Torah, and you would seek to memorize the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Okay, so all, um, what is that, 40, wait, no, we have... 46 books, yes. I was thinking of the Protestant number for a second. 46 books of the Old Testament. You would memorize them, memorize them. And then when it came time for the end of your education, if you hadn't done well enough, again, you'd be sent home. But if you proved a worthy student, you would have been looking at rabbis and studying in such a way that you wanted to be like them. And you would go and you would interview with your favorite rabbi and you would try and convince them that you would want to take on their yoke, their teaching, that you interpreted the Torah just like they interpreted the Torah, and you could regurgitate it almost like you were a mini version of them. And if this was pleasing to the rabbi, and the rabbi wanted you to be his disciple, he would say, come after me, come follow me. The same language that Jesus uses here. And then you would live with your rabbi, eat with your rabbi, study with your rabbi all the time. You would leave your family home and the rabbi was basically your father, your teacher, your master. You would apprentice under them until you became old enough to be a rabbi yourself. There was a common blessing at the time for disciples that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that you would follow him so closely that the dust would kick up off his feet and it would cover your tunic. That was the culture surrounding discipleship at this time. So imagine Peter, Andrew, James, and John being told their entire life, at least as young men, you're not smart enough. You're not good enough to be a disciple. No rabbi wants you. Go home and learn your master's or your father's trade. Fishermen at this time, or if fishing wasn't a very uh, pure or a very wholesome kind of occupation, deep water was believed to be the, the, the home of great evil. Uh, where Satan himself dwelled. And so you were kind of a fringe kind of uh, occupation, a uh, very dangerous occupation. And often the type of work that you had to do might mean that you couldn't honor the Sabbath in the same way that other people would. And so if you heard you were a, sh a fisherman, the same thing would come to mind if someone said you were a shepherd. 
because you were constantly having to tend the sheep, even on the Sabbath, even though that was forbidden, you weren't seen in a very good light. And so Jesus, he doesn't do the traditional rabbi thing. He goes to the pile of the rejects and he says, come after me, come after me, come follow me. That's why it probably struck them so deeply that they were willing to leave everything in that moment because they've been told their whole life they weren't good enough. Nobody wanted you. You would never amount to anything other than your father's trade. And here comes this rabbi who says otherwise. So I feel like I've talked plenty. I'll leave it there. Uh, any other things stand out to you? Any other questions you have about this passage? There's far more here, but that helps put some things into context. Yes. Well, you seem to like a conflict between northerners and southerners. Uh, that what you said? Yes, yeah. Do you want me to say more about that, the north and the south? Yeah, and, and uh, it's apparently Jesus chose people from the north, so... Yes. Yeah, Jesus chooses intentionally not to go to the place uh, where he would probably experience the most tension and, uh, and resistance initially so that he can build his ministry before he goes to Jerusalem, because what happens in Jerusalem, he's handed over and he dies. So if he were to barge right into Jerusalem saying and doing all the things that he would do, he would be dead within the first week of his ministry, most likely. And so in other gospels where we have the more elongated presentation of Jesus' ministry, you can see how he's very tactful in what he does in those initial encounters in Jerusalem or how quickly he gets out of town when he creates problems. And then it's only when he finally comes in during the events of Holy Week that he really lets the Pharisees have it. When he's like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers, and he's just unleashing on them because he's ready for this to reach its kind of climactic point and for him to be handed over. Uh, so there's a reason why he goes uh, to the north because there's Gentiles there. It was proclaimed in, in Isaiah that, uh, that the one who would come would be a light to all nations. Uh, but there's an interesting prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 16. And Jeremiah is a prophet who witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And so he saw all these people already being carried off into exile. It was very, very hopeless. All of the 10 tribes of Israel that had moved north, there were 12 original tribes of Israel, 10 had moved north and were, had been in civil war with the south. So Israel was the northern kingdom. They were at war with the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and those tribes were Joseph and, or sorry, Judah and Benjamin. And the 10 tribes were believed to be lost because uh, somewhere around 587 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came in and wiped out the entire northern kingdom, okay? And so they were believed to be lost. Jeremiah makes this prophecy about how and when the people would return from exile. Exile here being a real thing that was happening, but also representative of a future time when people were in exile in their relationship with God. They were lost in sin, so prophesying also about Jesus. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah says, this is uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 14. He says, therefore, days are coming when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought Israelites out of Egypt, but rather, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of the north and out of all the countries to which he had banished them, I will bring them back to the land I gave their ancestors. Look, I will send many fishermen to catch them. And so it's interesting here in the way that Mark puts this, Andrew casting their nets into the sea they were fishermen, by the way, to kind of point to Jeremiah 16, to perk the ears of those Jewish listeners who knew their Old Testament really well. Remember when Jeremiah prophesied that those who had been lost in the north would be brought back by fishermen. Well, where are we now? 
we're in the north. And who is Jesus calling? Fishermen. Very, very clear how Jesus is seeking to fulfill these Old Testament uh, foreshadowings and prophecies about his ministry. Yeah, so th yeah, thank you for asking that question because I forgot to mention that before. Yes? So based on what you were saying about um, the boys, like continuing on this world thing, mm -hmm. so Jesus had been one of the ones that was set home Yes, yeah, so he was working with his father. So potentially, here's what could have happened. Um, yeah, Jesus wasn't studying under a rabbi. But that would happen. That interview process would happen around the age of 12. And what happened around the age of 12 in Jesus' life? He's lost in the temple, and he's approaching the rabbis, but is he in being interviewed by them? No, he's schooling them completely. So he, yes, he came, he was raised in a very humble town of Nazareth. There may not have been the resources there for him to kind of pursue that kind of life. Um, he does, uh, scholars say he very much belonged to a certain school of rabbinical theology of the Rabbi Hillel. There were two kind of uh, rabbinical schools at this time, the Rabbi Shammai and the Rabbi Hillel, and that Jesus kind of more so aligns with Rabbi Hillel, but not completely. Um, but um, we don't have any evidence that he studied up to a particular point. Only at that point where you were formally interviewing, Jesus turns the tables almost as if to say, I don't need to be any of your disciples. You need to be mine. And then when Jesus and Mary find him, even though he could stay in the temple and take this further, they say, come home. And it says, and he was obedient to them. So he allowed himself to be subject to his parents' wishes because he's faithful to the commandments. One of the commandments is honor your father and mother. And so in order not to further his mission in that way, but further it later on, and to obey the commandments, he listens and he goes home and he does what any other child who didn't go about that route of rabbinical discipleship would do. He learned his father's trade. So it didn't mean that he was necessarily deemed not good enough by a particular rabbi. Uh, I could see how a rabbi would see some of the things that Jesus said and been like, this guy, I don't know where this guy's getting this, this kid, so just go home. You know, like kind of didn't know how to deal with this maybe uh, out there prodigy that was saying things out of left field that he wasn't ready for, uh, much like the Pharisees weren't ready to hear the things that Jesus said later on. Or he could have been doing really great in school, and then this was the time to interview, and he decided this is what I'm going to do. So, yeah. Yes, Greg. It seems like from what you're talking about, the young kid is smart enough to go through learning those 40-some books of the Bible, mm -hmm. the Old Testament, years and years and years. And Jesus comes along and picks the B or C class group mm -hmm. and creates all things that's new. Mm -hmm. But it seems in an academic sense, it's, it's infinitely easier to be Christian or to start to be Christian at a time than to be Jewish to learn to be a rabbi. Oh, sure. Versus, as opposed to like learning to be an apostle. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems academically very much easier at that time to just become Christian than if you were to convert to Judaism after the time of Jesus, after Jesus comes, you know, because you, at least everyone had to memorize these 613 laws of the, of the Jewish system of worship and ritual practice and just like ritual purity, things associated with the temple and sacrifice. And all of those are contained in those first five books of the Bible. And that was a common thing, that Pharisees expected people to know this and judged people when they did not, proclaimed, you are not pure, you are not able to go to the temple, you need to go this or that. The priests, that was their responsibility too, uh, to ensure people were making the proper sacrifices. So everyone, in order for this religious society to function, needed to know this. And then Jesus comes along and he asks, 
uh, you know, he, or he is asked, depending on which gospel you read, uh, what, which law is the greatest? You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This sums up the entire law, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he summarizes the entire law into those two statements. And so essentially, yes, it is fundamentally easier academically on paper to be a Christian, and yet living that out, we can see just from experience how that is still very, very difficult. You could even argue that it was easy to live out Judaism or easier because everything that you were expected to do was written out for you on paper. And it became regimented and very legalistic, but it was easy to know, am I wrong or am I right? And if I'm in the wrong, what do I do to sacrifice or purify myself? In Christianity, that part gets far more complicated. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about like this evangelizing in the Jewish culture. Like, was that not really a thing? Because the Jews were really just kind of a cultural religion. And yeah. They're closed off to Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. Was evangelization a thing in Jewish culture? I would say probably some people did it, but it was not a it was probably a fringe practice. Even though it is something that is very much inferred in the Old Testament that you should be proclaiming the goodness that God has done, it was seen as very exclusive. God chose us the Hebrew people, through which to save the entire world. And when the Messiah comes to right all of these wrongs and injustices that have been done to us historically and restore us to a position like we had when, with a kingdom and King David, then everyone will know the glory of God because we'll just be a great kingdom and we'll be in charge. That, I think, was the predominant or prevailing mentality. It wasn't, let's go out and get souls one by one. It's, let's wait until we're a political power again and then everyone just has to listen to us. And that is how we will save everyone. And there were certainly probably smaller groups that had a different approach. But I think the main mentality was like that. So yes, there wasn't any kind of I don't know, social cross-pollination between Jews and non-Jews. It was considered very uh, inappropriate. And you could fall into a position of being ritually impure and not being able to go to temple or uh, celebrate uh, the Sabbath or make sacrifices uh, or certain sacrifices until you made yourself pure again. Uh, so that that was something that they had to keep in mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. What would happen if like a Roman just like went up to one of the rabbis like, "Hey, like I want to learn." Like, would they deny him? No, I don't think if a, like a Roman came up to a Jewish person and said, "Hey, I want to learn," they wouldn't. I don't think they would deny him. There was a precedent for uh, Gentiles converting to Judaism, and we've talked about that. We talked about baptism. That there was a ritual washing that was prescribed for Gentiles when they would convert to Judaism. Um, and it, it involved a, a sense of conversion, a sense of repentance. Um, but what was unique about like what John the Baptist was doing is it was a baptism of repentance for Jews who were already Jewish. But that precedent already existed for Gentiles. It wouldn't have needed to exist if Gentiles weren't converting. So um, I think it, it, it would have been very difficult, I think, to handle because you see this kind of depicted in season three of The Chosen when Gaius has kind of... Um, he was, he's like a Roman centurion. He's kind of like not taking his station as seriously. And you can tell he's kind of wrestling with who Jesus is. And he has this interaction with, uh, with Peter and they're working on, uh, you know, uh, this well together, like trying to dig out this well or something that had flooded. And he goes to like share water with him. And Peter's like, whoa, like, you know, we can't, we can't touch anything that Gentiles touch. Uh, so even though they have this familiarity, they're not supposed to like share any eating or drinking utensils. They're not supposed to make physical contact because, uh, the Jewish people are considered the chosen people, and they have, they believe they have the presence of God in them in such a way that others don't. And it's not in the way that, like, 
if the divine is present in you, we have this kind of mentality as Christians that you can go out and spread it. In the Jewish system, it was like the divine is present in you, and if you touch something you're not supposed to, that life drains from you. And you are now needing to go be purified and filled back up again. It was kind of a negative sense of the, the power and presence of God within you that you could lose it. And so it, I think it, it wouldn't be impossible. I don't think they would turn someone away. Uh, I don't know a lot of historical precedents for this, but I think the difficulty would be in how do you socially, just in like practically handle interactions? Where do you meet? Because he can't come in a synagogue or into a temple. Uh, he's not Jewish yet. But how long would that conversion process have taken for an adult? Would they put him through the whole kid system of schooling? Probably not. But he would need to know enough to be able to observe the tenets of Judaism. So all those 613 laws, he would be able, need to be able to read and recite the Torah, at least as well as any of the other Jews at that time could be expected to. Those are things that I would assume uh, would make it very problematic and difficult for someone to convert to Judaism at that time. Rich. When you say reading, how many people were able to read that? How many people were able to read back then? Um, not a lot. Literacy was not common. Um, so a lot of um, the educational system was call and response based. In fact, there's all these references in scripture to like, uh, your words, O Lord, are sweeter than honey. You know, you heard those references about how the, like, the Lord or his words taste. And that's because the method of learning was that students would have a stone slab. And what rabbis would do is they would take honey and they would draw with some kind of like a disbursement tool, a symbol that represented a certain law. It could be a Hebrew letter or a couple Hebrew letters. And the student would see that and they would need to recite the law that that represented. And if they did it successfully, they could lick the honey off their slab. It was kind of a reward system for them. So that's where that phrase comes from, that your words, Lord, are sweeter than honey. It's literally how they learned and a positive kind of incentive to get them to memorize the words of the Old Testament. So it was very much call and response. It was learned orally and, and audio-based. Um, I've said before that other cultures, uh, Jewish culture took uh, uh, oral tradition very, very seriously. Other cultures at this time surrounding them took it even more seriously that if you were the person of that tribe entrusted with the religious or historical tales of that tribe or religion, and you uttered one word wrong, it was a crime punishable by death. That's how sacred they took the passing down of their stories with 100% accuracy. Now, Judaism didn't have that, but they carried that same sense of seriousness with the ways in which they taught and memorized. So literacy wasn't huge, especially the ability to maybe write, but they learned kind of through symbols and through story and through column response. Uh, and then those who had a better education were more likely to move more further ahead. So Paul, for instance, is very well educated. He was a Pharisee before he converted, and he studied with the rabbi Gamaliel, who was famous and mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 uh, at this time. So he was afforded probably pretty good education, which helped him be able to get further in that educational uh, kind of path. But Jesus, a very poor uh, tradesman, son of a tradesman from a very backwater, nothing town in Galilee, that didn't even have a Roman road to it, that was kind of in the middle of the nowhere, he was kind of set up or set himself up for the least likely circumstances to succeed educationally, um, which is probably why he chose the path that he did. Yeah, yes? Um, why did that one lady have a problem with John the Baptist? Herod yeah, why did Herodias have a, a problem with John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was preaching against her illicit marriage to her brother-in-law, Herod. Yeah, Herod had divorced his wife. Actually, I think he killed his wife and three of his sons. He was very murderous. 
and then married his brother's wife, uh, I think while he was still alive or ended up having him killed. He had a lot of people killed. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was very, very uh, something that John the Baptist, someone who obeyed the Jewish law, would obviously have a problem with. And because he was preaching in that, uh, that person's region, um, then he would obviously want to be saying something about it. So, yeah. That's also why um, I think I have this correct. In one of the Gospels, Jesus is in the region east of the Jordan, that same region where John the Baptist was preaching before he's making his way to Jerusalem. And in that same region, the Sadducees, I believe, try to trap him, and they ask him about marriage and the lawfulness of marriage. And this might even be where the Sadducees ask him, is there marriage in heaven because they don't believe in the resurrection? But they're bringing up the issue of marriage to try and get Jesus to say something socially or politically controversial so he might meet the same end as someone like John the Baptist who was speaking publicly about the Jewish laws on marriage and how obviously the leader of that region was not abiding by them, even though he was half Jewish. Other thoughts, questions, Greg? We seem to have two different versions of the introduction of Simon Peter to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Previous gospel, mm -hmm. he and the other apostle are with John the Baptist, mm -hmm. and you stress out John the Baptist's voice. He, he was there for a certain time, mm -hmm. and he must remove himself to a certain extent to allow Jesus to grow, become more dominant. Mm -hmm. And so they say, who, who is this person to John the Baptist? John says, well, that's Jesus. Go follow him. Mm -hmm. And then we have this other story, like, you know, about today, that Jesus is walking along the shore, and Simon Peter with other apostles are in the or in the boat with their nets, mm -hmm. and then he calls them there. So which one is it? It's both. Now, how do we reconcile these two uh, introductory passages to the Gospels, where one, Jesus uh, is pointed out by John the Baptist, and Andrew and another disciple are following him, and they start following Jesus, and then they tell other people and gain the following? Or uh, is Jesus up in Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, and calling them out of their boat? I mentioned this last week or the week before. I think The Chosen does a good job of reconciling these two where Andrew is following John the Baptist. Philip was also a follower of John the Baptist. And Andrew comes to Simon and says, the Messiah came, like we met him. And Simon's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And uh, then they, they're in Galilee after that happens and they're fishing. And that is when Jesus comes and encounters them. And Andrew's like, that's the one, that's the guy. And that's when Jesus actually calls them. And so it's, it, you can easily reconcile the two uh, because, as I said last week, John is not concerned with chronology in his gospel. He uses that sequence of days like the beginning of Genesis does, and that's not chronological. It's periods of time to try and convey a certain truth about the divinity of Jesus. And so John is doing a very particular job at the beginning of his gospel to show how John the Baptist was special, but he was just a human, and look how he got out of the way to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Because even after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, in Ephesus, you read this, I think, in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters followers of John the Baptist who are still disciples of John the Baptist, even though he's long dead. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, just get baptized. Like, get with the program. Um, so John was very concerned with that message still lingering around and people not recognizing the superiority of Jesus' mission. So he has a particular purpose that's not exactly as chronologically accurate because that's not his purpose in writing, as the other synoptic gospels might be. He's adding something in to show how John the Baptist was subjugating himself to Jesus. 
and creating that kind of narrative there. Um, but you can reconcile them chronologically. I think The Chosen does a good job of that. That may have been how it happened. Or we can just take what John did as a later literary device to emphasize that John, even though he appeared to be something like Elijah and could have been this very apocalyptic kind of messianic figure, is he himself says he's nowhere near the level of Jesus. So look to Jesus instead of John the Baptist. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it seems like in both instances, Simon's encountering Jesus for the first time. Well, in, the, in John, Andrew is the one who encounters Jesus, and then he goes and gets Simon. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, it doesn't say it's for the first time. He just says he sees Simon and Andrew and says, come follow me. So he could have, Andrew could have gone and got Simon because Andrew doesn't live in the region where John the Baptist is preaching. Andrew and Simon live in Bethsaida, which is in Galilee. So in order to go get his brother, he has to go to Galilee. And then they're fishing he brings Simon to Jesus by saying, let's drop our nets and follow this rabbi who is coming to call us. So even though we don't see that geographical change in the way that John depicts it, because he doesn't care about that, he's looking to emphasize something else, it doesn't mean it, it makes the two differences in stories irreconcilable. Yeah, that's a great question. Any other final thoughts in our closing minutes or questions or things that just stood out to you that you enjoyed? Cool, then I will close with a few things. Um, a question that's often asked, which I think we, um, I talked about why, why are Peter and Andrew and James and John able to leave everything behind? And you know, we painted, I painted this picture of what discipleship was like at this time, and they would hear this, not just as some random guy coming and saying, hey, you should come with me, and them going, okay, you know, but there was actually like a very emotional kind of attachment here to these words, come after me, you're good enough, even though you've been rejected, I want you to follow me. I see something in you that other people do not see. But I think it also speaks to this ability to just leave everything behind. You know, we're kind of at the beginning of the liturgical year still, and in the first part of the season of ordinary time. And every liturgical year, we hear about the promises of the Messiah who is coming in the flesh, in the incarnation, and how he begins his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, at this time in ordinary time before Lent, is really an opportunity for us to reflect on how Jesus is calling us. That he's coming to where we are in our ordinary life, doing our ordinary tasks. We are, in some sense, fishermen, doing our daily jobs and tasks, whatever that might be. And Jesus comes and says, I see something in you. I see something in you, and I want you to follow me. What are we prepared to give up for the Lord? Are we prepared to let go of the things that we are holding on to so that we can better follow Jesus? This time of year is always orienting our focus toward those types of questions. We're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're at the beginning of a new year. We're at the beginning of a season that now the days are getting uh, a longer. Or no, the, yeah, and the nights are getting shorter. The darkness is kind of beginning to go away. And that very much is, can be an analogy for our own life. Like, how is God? speaking into your life and mine to diminish those maybe darker attachments or to look more toward the light and where Jesus is leading. What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to drop your nets? And for, for Andrew and Simon, dropping their net was not just like, okay, I guess we don't have to clean this anymore. This was like, 
goodbye livelihood, goodbye security, goodbye steady income, goodbye to the one thing that I've learned how to do in my life that I might be kind of good at, even though there's not a lot of evidence they were good fishermen because they didn't catch anything all night. But, you know, even then, they were able to drop it. And even James and John, they're sons of their father, Zebedee, who's named. It's clear that people would have known who he was in this region, otherwise it wouldn't be worth naming him, and that he had hired men. They were part of this very prolific and successful enterprise. To be able to just say, all right, Dad, even though we're very comfortable and you've provided everything for us and we have jobs and we have no reason to want, we're going to go. We're going to go. Can we just let go? Are you able to have a, a looser grasp on the things in your life? This doesn't mean that we're careless and we say like, okay, there goes all my relationships, my job, and maybe I'll quit tomorrow and I'll just see what God wants. No, but to not hold on so firmly and so rigidly to the way our life looks or the way that we think our life should go, our hopes, our desires, where we're hoping God will lead us and we just trust. Can we do that? Can we trust? Can we allow ourselves to see the trajectory of our lives differently and trust that maybe God knows the path better than we do? Maybe God knows where this is leading. And he's looking at you and I this week through the words of this passage and saying, I see something in you. Will you come and let me do something new with that? Show you how this desire you have for satisfaction and fulfillment can be realized in me. Not in just fishing, not in just doing the daily things, the daily tasks of life, but in using those gifts God has given you to do something even greater. My favorite, favorite piece of this, of this passage, every time I read it, what stands out to me, I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, I will make you preachers of men. I will make you teachers of men. I will make you great disciples, like those of the rabbis that rejected you. He says, I will keep your gifts the same, but I will use them for something greater. You don't have to change. You don't have to learn a new skill. You don't have to suddenly be able to stand in front of a microphone and recite things from the Bible from memory. You don't have to do that in order for God to use you. And if you tried, you wouldn't be doing it as well as the people who are called to do that. You'd be missing out on the job that God has for you in his great plan of salvation and how you can spread the good news and you can build his kingdom and how the time of fulfillment is at hand for you, for the reign of God to be known in your life and in the lives of those around you. That's something powerful that can happen if we just let go and allow the grasp that we have on the things that we care so much about and seek to control to just be a little looser so that God can take them away from us if he wants and give us something new, something better. So I want to encourage you not to hear this and think like, okay, I've got to totally 180 degree change my life. I mean, if you're living in sin and you're doing things you're not supposed to, then maybe that's, that's a reality. But for the most part, it's just about letting go and letting the Lord rearrange things and allow them to be used for a greater purpose. And if we're so afraid of change or so rigidly attached to the way we want our life to be or the way our life is now, God is not going to force us and he will not be able to use us in those ways until we let him. Come after me and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, thank you for calling us. Thank you for seeing in us things that we do not often see in ourselves. You said in John 15, 16, it was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you 
to bear fruit that would remain. You chose us, Lord. You are always the initiator. You are always the one seeking after us first. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not be so rigidly attached to the way things are in our life, so unwilling to change or unwilling to let go that we might miss these callings that you're placing before us, that we might miss the satisfaction and fulfillment that you promise us, but that we would be willing to go wherever you lead us. And that may not mean that much changes, but that the way in which you use our gifts, the purpose that you orient our lives to, deepens. But whatever that is, Lord, we pray this week that you would allow us to discern, allow us to listen, allow us to be receptive to your voice and where you are leading us, and help us to be led, to let go of the reins and allow you to be in complete control of our lives. All for your glory, Lord. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.